Hello and welcome to Party in China, episode 6 of the second series. The continuing adventures of me, Party Parslow, in my last few weeks in Sichuan. But never fear, the humour, the horrors and the humiliation are just beginning. Promise! July started and my contract finally ended. Sonny's had been trying to get me to re-sign, but I just wanted to resign. And not just them, Mr Wong had been cheerfully harassing me for months to come back for another year or two, and couldn't seem to understand my reluctance. I tried to make it clear to him by loudly insisting, Look, I just want to be home in Australia. To which he replied, But Mr Party, Australia has rejected you. Which really annoyed me. I suppose he figured that anyone who would leave God's own country to come and teach there in China must be a failure. And maybe he was right. Nonetheless, when he offered me a week as a tutor, I figured I could use the extra cash. And since nobody had told me when I would finish up as a teacher, I couldn't make any firm travel plans anyway. My new elite students were going for a scholarship to study in Singapore for four years, starting that November. The seven candidates, four girls, three boys, were all about 15 years old, all were intelligent, most had comparatively good English. The girls were lovely and polite, the boys were alternately insolent and attentive. One, pretentiously named Caesar, was unsurprisingly a pretentious asshole. Convinced of his own brilliance, loud-spoken and entirely sure that he was hysterically funny. He reminded me of somebody. Ah, oh, yeah, me at that age. With such a small number of students and a single clear agenda to help them succeed at the scholarship exam and interview, I looked forward to my tutoring time and I tried to vary each lesson to keep them interested and alert. But there was one constant in every class. Caesar was a pain in my ass. Towards the end of the week, I walked in to find him apparently asleep on my desk with the other students sitting around talking quietly so as not to wake him. Nearly as tall as me, but a third of my weight, Caesar was curled in the fetal position to fit on my desktop. With his head on a bright red heart-shaped pillow, he'd been cuddling every day while stridently insisting it was his girlfriend. Holding my folder up high, I dropped it on the desk next to his head but the loud noise didn't make him move a millimetre. So I shook him by the shoulder and said, time to get up, but he didn't. <laughs> the others were giggling madly, but even that wasn't enough to rouse him. So I ripped the pillow from under his head, which hit the desk with a loud crack. The others were laughing out loud now, yet incredibly, he still feigned sleep. So I lifted my end of the desk. When he didn't move, I upended it all the way and he slid off, cartwheeling into the air. I saw his face as he awoke in a complete panic. He really had been fast asleep. 
Although how anyone could sleep through all that, I don't know. Unless I'd knocked him unconscious when I snatched the pillow away. Caesar bounced up from the floor with commendable agility and soared into a rage, screaming in Chinese much too fast for me to understand. Besides, I didn't know any swear words. He retrieved the heart-shaped cushion from wherever I'd thrown it and spent the rest of the lesson hugging it to his chest and trying to kill me with his eyes. I think it was testament to my growing experience as a teacher that I didn't laugh at all. Until 40 minutes later after that class, when I went all the way into another building to be sure I was out of earshot and then laughed and laughed till I cried. I expected this extra gig to last a week, but it was extended to a fortnight. As it was difficult to continually focus seven students on a shared goal, I approached Mr Wong for more details on the scholarship process and discovered that one of the hosting schools was all boys, the other all girls, and both were Christian institutions. As I'd been educated, i.e. bullied and beaten, in all-boy Catholic schools, this opened up many new avenues for me. Simply explaining how single-sex schools worked provoked disbelief and dismay in my students. And then throwing in the Christian rituals, mass, communion, confession, bewildered and frightened them. But they weren't overwhelmed until I went into the details of transubstantiation. As I wasn't sure if they were Catholic or Protestant schools, I explained to my young charges that if they won a scholarship, their fellow Singaporean students would either believe in regularly devouring the body and blood of their one true God or consuming a tiny round wafer which represented the bread he broke on the night of his arrest before his torture and painful death from which he recovered the following Sunday. I loved watching their faces during those lessons. The disbelief in their eyes mirrored my own thoughts when I'd been told all that stuff as a kid. Catechism was the only subject I used to fail. It all just seemed silly. So I would write jokes instead of answers in exams. On the second last day, things between Caesar and I came to a head and very nearly came to a punch to his head. As I started class, his mobile phone rang. I'd already told everyone to turn off their phones. However, Caesar ignored me and went to the back of the class speaking loudly, then leant out a window, yelling and waving at someone in front of the school, presumably whoever was on his phone. Ignoring this glaring disobedience and flagrant discourtesy, I continued with my prepared lesson. After a while, he returned to his desk and lounged behind it like Sonny Corleone, bored mindless at a Capo di Capi conference. I told him to turn off his phone again. He said no. I explained I wouldn't go on with the class until he turned his phone off. He made a regal gesture and said, Continue. I think I snarled. Undaunted, he drawled. Continue, I said. 
By now, I had, without realising it, reached his desk and physically couldn't see any of the other students. Partly from tunnel vision after going into attack mode, but mainly as they'd fled to either side of the classroom. I must still have had some sort of control though, as instead of grabbing him by the throat, I picked up his nearly two weeks of notes, ripped them in four and threw them in his face. Right now, I can't remember which part of my teaching English as a foreign or second language course dealt with destroying students' paperwork prior to physical assault but I'm guessing it was somewhere near the end. Even an ego as immense as Caesar's had to realise that he was in imminent peril of injury. For my part, I'd put up with his smart arsery through a year of special classes and was perfectly prepared to beat him into either unconsciousness or an ambulance, whichever came first. He sprang from his desk and backpedalled quickly yelling insults. Probably I still didn't know any swear words, until he bumped into the back door, opened it and fled. After returning to the podium and breathing deeply for several seconds, I told the rest to sit back down and then, a teacher deserves respect whether you like him or not. That's the situation in class. Teacher, students, mutual respect. Returning somewhat shakily to my lesson plan, adrenaline I suppose, I only managed five minutes or so before Caesar burst back in through the back door, conveniently out of my reach, and yelled, If I see you in the street in a few years, you know what will happen? Yeah, I reposted with equal volume and much more aggression. I'll beat the shit out of you. Perhaps not my finest moment as a teacher. As class ended, the remaining students all crowded around to apologise to me, even though I had made it clear I didn't blame them. In an impressive English phrase, Mark said, His behaviour is bad for us all. I walked home, alert for the possibility of a skinny, egomaniacal ambush, but no such satisfying climax occurred. Instead, the next morning, Caesar made an erudite and apparently sincere apology, which quite deflated me. As he sat back down, I interpreted the looks between the students. They'd ganged up on him and forced him to apologise. The final class was unremarkable, except a lovely young woman named Mary spent the whole time sketching me. It was a thoughtful farewell gift, which I still treasure, even though it's since occurred to me that she mustn't have been listening to a bloody word I'd said. Despite the dramatics, I felt that I'd done well by my students and prepared them as completely as possible for the scholarship exam and subsequent interview. Later, I discovered that not one of them was successful. Job well done. My departure from Diang was a generally pleasant but low-key affair. The invaluable John and Perry had to help me book my flight home, as despite having opened a special account with the Bank of China, specifically for online transactions, I still was unable to buy anything or pay bills on the internet. 
This meant I lost almost all of my possessions when the storage people auctioned them off to pay the fees. It was theoretically possible to send money to Australia by applying in person at a bank, but you had to change the yuan into US dollars first, don't ask me why, and then had to prove that you'd paid all appropriate tax on that money before it left the country, which I was unable to do. I mean, I think I was paying tax, but I didn't have any proof of it. I never saw a payslip, and when I'd asked Sonny's about taxes, the reply was vague, complicated, and took so long that I forgot the question. When we'd booked the flights, I'd planned to have two or three weeks to travel to some touristy parts of China, but the extra fortnight's tutorship left me with only a few days before flying out. I wasn't too disappointed as I was desperate to swim in the sea, eat still bleeding slabs of succulent steaks and be among shapely women. All the things I'd taken for granted at home. I was, however, keen to see two giants, the giant pandas near Chengdu and the giant Buddha in Lushan. Unfortunately, both were weather dependent and it had already been thunderstorming for days. For my goodbye bash, I invited just about everyone I knew to Winita's. Most of them showed up, but apart from Trevor, who drank with gusto with me all afternoon and evening, hardly anybody stayed for the whole time. Instead, they came and went to their own timetables. I received two shocks that night. One was when Jessica, a colleague from school, was leaving and I went to give her a kiss on the cheek. She screamed as if I'd poked a knitting needle in her eye. The other was at the end of the night when Winita gave me the bill. Yikes! I'd forgotten that the Chinese way is for the host to pay for the whole thing. I think that also explained Trev's enthusiasm. Coming up on Party in China, the day I had dreamed about for nearly a whole year. The day I left Diang. Huh. Sounds like country song and it rhymes with twang. And that will be followed by the worst trip of my entire life. Well, until the next trip, which was even worse. That was when I went back to China and oh, sorry, spoiler alert. Oh well, that's not gonna happen for several weeks and by then, You'll have forgotten about that little slip by me, Party Parslow. Thanks for listening to Party in China. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.